Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Talking Heads podcast with me, Saul Walker. And me, Lucy Chamberlain. With lockdown limitations continually adjusting and the summer now looking us beautifully in the eye, we continue with regular discussions about our respective horticultural worlds. Putting the pandemic's grip on us aside, we sincerely hope that you found enough moments to quietly contemplate, distract yourself, gaze in wonder and generally pour positive and fruitful energy into this most glorious and rewarding of hobbies, which, for Saul and myself, we are lucky enough to also call our profession. Restrictions are still with us, experiences are still unprecedented, but Lucy and I hope that by providing you with a continued shortened version of this podcast every few days, you can easily fit a small dose of horticultural musings into your routine. We will, of course, still bring you longer bonus episodes too, when we chat to inspirational peers on more in-depth gardening topics. So fire up the kettle, get comfortable in your favourite chair and join us now for a 20-minute escape into the busy and exciting world of the modern head gardener. Tonight I'm standing in my very own garden in Essex, just outside Colchester, and I'm looking upon something that feels very familiar to me. Those of you who know me will know that I adore growing fruit and vegetables. I'm the daughter of smallholders and for my entire life I've been surrounded by fruit and veg and my very earliest memories are of my parents and myself and my brother all growing fruit and veg and getting things sent off to the London markets and to do anything else for me just would not feel right. So It's their fault that I am bombarding my Twitter feed with lots and lots of pictures of growing fruits, vegetables and herbs. And as I say, I absolutely adore it. What I'm going to do in this episode is try to explain to you what I can see through my eyes and also the design process involved in setting up this garden. Because, as I say, it takes its inspiration directly from the wall kitchen garden at East Donnellan Hall, which is two thirds of an acre. This much more modest plot is 40 foot by 40 foot. The whole of our garden from the road to the boundary fence is 120 foot. So we're very blessed to have a decent sized garden here. We do live out in the sticks and that is often what happens with your house. You get a decent sized garden at the same time. So we're very lucky and two-thirds of the way down is our veggie patch. Should I call it a kitchen garden? Sometimes I think that's a bit grandiose, but you know what? It is, because it does grow fruit and veg and herbs and all manner of stuff, so I will now call it the kitchen garden. We've been in this property for six years. We got married in July of 2014, and in November we moved into this house. And obviously we had to renovate the house a little bit before we moved in, so that was the priority but then very soon after that I got my teeth into the back garden. The uh, previous owners who'd lived here uh, as time passed they weren't able to look after the garden quite so much as they used to but we knew that they did have a vegetable garden where we now have our kitchen garden so it was lovely to reinstate it and over time there was an awful lot of walnut trees, hazel, ash, sycamore, all sorts of tree seeds that had actually self-sown. Cherries, that was another one. We had to dig all these massive, massive trees out and stumps. I did keep saying to my husband, Ian, Ian, we're going to win. It's just digging. Uh, Sometimes he didn't believe me, but we did get there. Um, And 
then we cleared the garden and started to put back into place what we wanted you know as our own design so for me I really wanted to ensure I had a lot of bed space in my kitchen garden a lot of veggie gardens you see that the path widths are really wide and there's not that much need for them to be so wide the path that I've got here the main path is a meter wide which is generous and all the um, arterial paths off that are about 60 centimeters wide which is what I measured is a good width to get a wheelbarrow down which is all I needed to do one person can walk down there with a wheelbarrow really easily so it meant that I could put a lot of the ground to to vegetable beds and that is as I say really what I wanted to do um, the soil here is light and sandy so it means that we do have to add an awful lot of organic matter and nutrition to the soil it's got low nutrient status uh, by its nature it's very free draining so I didn't put raised beds into this garden I've put timber edged beds the it's like two by four timbers and they were all beautifully placed by my husband after I'd drawn out the design onto a piece of graph paper. He did an amazing job of getting them all put in. I helped him clear the pathways, but as I say, the bulk of that work, he I could not have done that without him. So thank you very much, Ian. And the beds are maybe about an inch higher than the rest of the gravel path, the soil level. So there's slightly raised but only because we've been adding organic matter to them the objective here is not really to raise those uh, the soil up if you've got a heavy clay soil then yes very much consider putting raised beds in because then it elevates that soil makes it more free draining makes it quicker to dry out in the spring less likely to waterlog through the winter uh, easier to warm up in the spring as well so it does have some benefits but as I say for me with our free draining soil I did not want to have raised beds because it would have just dried out in a flash so this garden has been inspired by the walled kitchen garden at East Dolan Hall. As I say, it's about two thirds of an acre. This plot is the 40 by 40 foot equivalent that maybe you could have in your back garden. So it's square and it also then has fences around it that are in the shade, fences that are in the sun and some that are semi-shade. So that is a basic design principle that the Victorians used to grow crops that either loved the sun or were happier to be a little bit cooler and moister and so that is what I've exactly have done here. So what I'm looking at is four central beds that are edged by box. Now these are what I call my ornamental beds and I grow in here cut flowers. So I don't I have grown in the past courgettes in here and they look lovely and sweet corn but for the last couple of years I've decided to put these areas to more of an ornamental purpose so these are my cutting garden and I've got some lovely sunflowers in here one called vanilla ice which just flowers its sock sauce and others that are lovely complementary colours to to go with the paler le lemon yellow of the vanilla ice I've got zinnias I've got a panicum called frosted explosion which is this amazing grass that just looks like like the name suggests and it's very frothy and adds wonderful kind of energy to any bouquets that you make so I really do enjoy having those and as I say they're highly ornamental and I've also then got in that same area to kind of reinforce the ornamental value of the garden four fruit trees in slate coloured pots and they're decent sized pots because I do 
um, appreciate that fruit in pots does need an awful lot of water. And so I've gone for decent sized pots, again for the design aspect, but also to make sure the plants are easy to look after. I'd say they're probably about a foot and a half wide and at least a foot and a half deep, these containers. And in one I've got a cherry, I've got an apricot, I've got a sour cherry, and I've got a lovely green gauge. And they all sit in the center of the garden, but I can move them around. Say, for example, the apricot when it flowers, I move it into the greenhouse so that the flowers are protected from any chills and frosts. And then going out from those four central beds, I have four big L-shaped beds, and that's where I grow the majority of my vegetables and also some fruit. There's more pathways after that. And then down the perimeter of the garden, we've got narrower beds. Some of them are maybe a meter wide, but the narrow ones are going to 60 centimeters. And that's where I have a lot of my fan trained and wall trained fruit, because those beds are the ones that flank the fencing and the, the, the walls. And that's perfect place to be growing as I say, fan-trained or cordon or espalier fruit, because it's, it's a small space, but if you grow trees in that two-dimensional form, you can get an awful lot of tree into a relatively small space, and you can still walk down the path and not have your eye poked out, which is all very good. So I'm going to take you on a little tour of the garden. You can hear underfoot I've got gravel down here. People get very twitchy about gravel pathways because they think, oh my goodness, the cats are going to use them as a litter tray. Do you know what? We've got a cat, Isaac, and he's never used this as a litter tray. And I think it's because the gravel isn't very deep. It's probably only about an inch deep at the, at the absolute most. We put some weed control fabric underneath it to just, as I say, stop the weeds growing. And it's done a perfect job. We've got little pegs holding it down and it looks very nice. It stops things like slugs and snails crawling over it in the dry weather, maybe not in the damp weather, but can't have everything. And it looks very, very attractive as well. It really sets off the, the earth beds really nicely. So I've walked to what I would say is the shadiest side of our garden, and I'm looking at a brick wall, which is about waist high, and it's got oak beams on it. We love, we're so lucky to inherit this. It's a real feature of our of our garden and it's echoed in other places so we've, we've tried to to keep it for continuity and along here I've got three plants that really are quite happy in the shade these three plants are gooseberries so I've got a yellow gooseberry called early yellow sulfur I've got a green gooseberry called Invicta and I've got a red called Hinamaki red they're all delicious most of them I can eat straight off the bush. The Invicta also can be used as a culinary gooseberry, but when it's really ripe, it can be used fresh. And these are growing, as I say, against this shady brick wall. Gooseberries like the sun, but they're tolerant of the shade. And you have to think when you're positioning fruit in a garden, if you've got a shady wall, any of these fruits that are slightly tartar, so things like the gooseberries, also red currants, black currants, morello cherries, which is the cooking sour cherry, they are happy in the shadier site because they don't need as much sunshine. They don't have those really high sugar levels in their fruits, so they don't need to be positioned along a sunny wall. I'll talk about the sunny wall, in my case a fence, uh, in a moment because there are some fruits, conversely, that do really like to be in the sun. <laughs> I don't know if you can pick up this on the microphone, but there's a man in a microlight above my head. Now this is Dave, I know Dave. He uh, is very good friends with our neighbors next door. So I might wave at him in a moment. It's a lovely calm evening tonight, really clear. 
and we've had a, a very hot day here in Essex. It's been way above 30 degrees and Dave is making the most of the wonderful vision and clarity at the moment because it's you can see for a lovely distance so if it gets noisy I do apologize uh, but this is what happens where I live so as I say I'm on the shady side of the garden at the moment I'm just waving at Dave oh he's doing a u-turn I thought he was gonna go <laughs> I think he's hanging around a little bit he's probably gonna be waving at my neighbors in a minute so I'll, I'll keep turning it off so I'm just waving Dave goodbye. Honestly, I wish I could see what he's seeing at the moment because it must be absolutely stunning up there. Uh, but let's go back down to terra firma and I'll talk you through the, as I say, the shadier side of my edible garden because people do, as I say, they get, people get nervous about the shade and it's actually a really useful resource for gardeners to have because, as I say, a lot of plants don't like their roots being baked or their stems being baked they, they just can't take it. it 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 causes poorer yields and they dry out really quickly and um, they just become stunted and weak and spindly so those sorts of plants as I say we've got on the shadier side so I've mentioned already the gooseberries and the currants I've also got some little alpine strawberries I've got a Japanese wineberry and I've got some shrubby raspberries that I was sent as a trial uh, which I wasn't overly impressed about, so I'm not going to talk about those too much. But I also have got in front of me a bed that's about, I would say, about five metres long and about two metres wide. And in this, I have my summer raspberries and my autumn raspberries, and I have some blueberries. So the summer raspberries, I have a, a great variety called Morling Minerva and another called Glen Ample. And between them, they have provided me this summer with the most abundant crop you would not believe. Um, they have been providing me with fruits from, I think it was about early July right through until uh, early August. And it was, as I say, abundant. Um, the autumn raspberries, I've got uh, polka which is, to my mind, a really good autumn raspberry. Obviously, the first one introduced was Autumn Bliss, which is very good. We have it at the hall. But Polka, to me, is it's got that bit more vigour and um, the fruit size is a little bit larger as well. So I just think it's got slightly the edge. And then I've also got a lovely yellow-fruited autumn raspberry, which is called All Gold. And it just um, tastes so much like a red raspberry, and yet it's bright yellow. And it's just fun. It, it, it messes with your brain a little bit when you eat it because you think it shouldn't taste like a red raspberry, but it actually really does. And it looks nice in the bowl. So I do have that. I've got, as I say, four blueberries here. And the blueberry bed, again, it's in a bit more shade. What I've done with this bed is I have dug it out completely to about a spade and a half stepped. And then I've lined it with polythene, pierced the base of the polythene, and then added in two big bags of the peat-free ericaceous compost. So I've mixed in our garden soil as well and the, the pH of our garden soil I should add is slightly acidic so that also did help but this of course is because blueberries do like things slightly acidic. So that was the idea then and also the ericaceous compost locks onto moisture very well. I have been watering these a lot. I'm mindful that blueberries do like a moist free draining soil so I have been keeping them very well watered and they have provided me with a massive harvest in return so it's all working well. So I'm just gonna skip past to the other slightly shadier area of our garden which I have devoted to some rhubarb. Again rhubarb is very happy in the sun but it also will take a little bit of shade. Um, so I've got two Oh, three crowns of rhubarb here. Um, 
I love forcing these in the spring. You might have seen on Twitter right back in February or March that I was forcing these and they look so hot pink and then with the yellow tips it's just a glorious sight. And then after that I've got my brassica cage. Again, brassicas, very leafy veg. They like a lot of nitrogen, so we do feed this bed really heavily. But in here I've got the black kale, curly kale. I've got cauliflowers, Brussels sprouts, purple sprouting. I've had a crop of calabrese already. And as I say, these are happier in a shadier site. So that's why they've been positioned on that side of the garden. So let's go over to the slightly sunnier side. In there I have got things such as leeks, I've got bulb fennel, so both those crops, I should also add, and I've got some celery and celeriac here that I'm standing at, this is not in the full sun, uh, these crops do like continual moisture to build up, for example with the fennel and the celery, the the size of the, of the heads there, and again with the bulb fennel and the leeks, it's basically trying to get a decent sized harvest, so the beds have had lots of manure added to them, and it's also not, they're not baked by the sun, so they're, they're happy where they are and they're bulking up really nicely. Right, I'm now walking to the really south side of our garden. The shady side, I should say, is almost north facing. Not, we're not quite on an ideal north and north um, south axis here, but it's, it's more north than, than anything else. So now I've come to the south side. On here, I have heat loving veg, which is things such as chili peppers which I've got growing in pots I've got dwarf beans I've got agretti which is my new best friend I absolutely love agretti it's um, for those of you who don't know it's a, it's a salt marsh plant but also you can grow it from seed in your garden and it's like a bit like samphire in its taste and its texture but it's just very very easy to grow I've also got my climbing runner beans and my climbing French beans. Uh, they have been prolific again this year. And I must add, on the south side, which is, as I say, the sunnier side, I do utilise this in the spring because I love growing things such as broad beans and new potatoes and early harvest of peas. So I do use this for those kinds of crops that you'd think normally peas and broad beans do like the moisture but in the spring because it warms up here that bit sooner I, I utilize that to get really really early harvests. So what fruit have I got growing on this side of the garden? I did mention that there are some fruits that absolutely love to be baked by the sun so I'm looking here for example at a very young gauge tree called Deniston Super which is lovely. It's self-fertile, it's like a big green gauge. Um, this is a young plant that I put in this winter because I did have another gauge here which sadly didn't get going so this is a second attempt and I'm looking after this one and making sure that this one doesn't fail. I've also then got a cherry called Celeste which I've been fan training out against the fence. It's was a bit stubborn to start off with and wouldn't grow into the right shape so I actually cut it back really hard this spring and it's come back with a vengeance. It's worked very well. I've got five branches on one side and five on another so I'm very happy with that and as I say although the tree is spanning I would guess about a 10 foot width of the fence here. It doesn't jut out more than six inches so perfect for anyone wanting to cover a wall or fence and as I say these modern cherries are also self-fertile so you only need one tree. Now I'm walking past my I would say my greatest success so far at this garden which is a peach tree. It's Rochester and it has romped away. It um, is trained again as a fan and I will put some pictures up of this on social media so you can see. Um, people don't 
imagine that you can grow peaches in the UK, but oh my goodness, this tree has been prolific. I get 60 odd peaches off this every year. They're huge, they're full of juice, their flavour and the taste is just out of this world. So please, if you do want to, have a go at a peach. If you've got a south facing wall, they are brilliant. And I should add, with peaches, they do suffer from peach leaf curl, but the one benefit of growing your peach up against a fence, because it's a more of a two-dimensional shape when you fan train it out, you can very easily control peach leaf curl. Peach leaf curl needs moisture on the leaves and the buds as they emerge in the spring to germinate. The fungal spores, if there's no moisture there, will not germinate. So what you can do is cloak the whole tree in a polythene sheet to keep it dry from late January through up until the leaves come out and start to toughen up. So we're talking about maybe late March and April. And it stops peach leaf curl 100%. Works a treat. Organic, no sprays needed. Job done. So that is a very quick guide of my garden. I also need to take you to my final area, which has only been introduced to our garden in last summer and autumn which is our greenhouse. So you might hear me, yes, not more, no more gravel, maybe a little bit more echoes in the acoustics. I'm now standing in the cedar greenhouse, which is my pride and joy. Absolutely love it. It's got a basic block paving floor, uh, five quarters of bricks, and then the cedar frame, which we did indulge in. Um, it is more expensive, but oh my goodness, it's so worth it. Um, I was very, well, do you say lucky when you get an inheritance? I suppose my lovely godmother passed and she left me a few, a few thousand pounds and I put it towards this cedar frame. And I'm so glad I did because, yes, it's a treat, but oh my goodness, I love it. And it's it's just been worth it. My husband and I, we spend most evenings in here. We've slept in here two nights because that's what you do in this village to make your own entertainment. And um, at the moment, it is now full of my absolute go-to crop which is tomatoes my mum and dad were commercial tomato growers predominantly so for me I could not be without tomatoes I've got eight in here two cherries so the cherries are sweet aperitif and black cherry then I've got two of my favorite beefsteak which is tomand lovely beefsteak and then I've got four furline so furline's classed botanically is a beefsteak. It doesn't really look like it though. It's not got the, the deep ribs that most beefsteaks have. It's a large fruit and I use that one for cooking. They're, all of them they've got, for me, I mean I know flavour is subjective but for me they've got a lovely lovely taste and they have romped away. I'll take some pictures because the black cherry in particular has gone up into the roof and um, I am getting lovely pickings from these and most lunch times I now have tomatoes on toast with a little bit of garlic rubbed on, olive oil, some basil, because I've got basil in pots in here as well, and it's all rather rather delicious and, um, and very nice. I've also got here uh, six melon plants. So the melons, I will be honest, I'm not impressed with them this year, and I'm going to try some other varieties. And I think partly it's our soil in here. We did um, put garden soil in, which didn't have an awful lot of organic matter in. Now, the tomatoes, I know do fine in garden soil because my parents greenhouses were actually planted into soil the tomatoes there rather than say for example hydroponically growing in rock wool which is what sometimes happened in say like the the 80s and 90s but my mum and dad just grew this straight into the soil because they started in the 70s and that's worked 
people sp- specifically asked for their tomatoes from the market because they tasted so good. And I do think tomatoes grown in the soil taste very, very nice. I've also got two cucumber plants and they have been, again, amazing. I'm really pleased with them. I, um, I love cucumbers. And these ones are what I would call like the two thirds link. We've got one called Swing and one called Silor. And um, you don't need to peel them. They're very tender. They taste like cucumber. Oh my goodness, the supermarkets, what are you doing? Get some cucumbers in there that just taste like cucumber. And oh, they're lovely. They've been producing fruits maybe every three or four days between them. We get one fruit on each plant. So for Ian and myself, that, and, and well, I've been giving them to the neighbours and friends as well. That's definitely enough cucumber so I probably should stop talking now because as you can tell uh, I could do a whole hour worth on my uh, my kitchen garden here I it does bring me so much joy and I hope I've managed to convey that somehow uh, in this podcast if you have any questions about growing fruit and veg whatsoever or herbs or where to position crops how to get the best out of them please do tap me up on Twitter. You might also want to have a look at the book I've written for the Royal Horticulture Society. It's published by Dorling Kindersley and it's called the RHS Step-by-Step Veg Patch. I've been told it's really good for beginners. It's got lots of step, well, as the name suggests, step-by-step sequences on how to get the best out of your crops and lots of variety recommendations, all that kind of stuff. So you may want to buy one of those as well. Oh no, I can't say that. So that concludes today's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening and would love any feedback or reviews you feel compelled to give us via your preferred podcast provider or social media platform. Life in the garden and out of it continually evolves for all of us. There is now reference to a new kind of normal and we are excited to hope that this will bring opportunities to visit gardens, friends and colleagues old and new so we can gradually adjust from virtual to actual worlds. Specialist nurseries, gardening charities, small businesses and self-employed individuals will still rely on us for financial support and encouragement over the coming weeks and months. We hope everyone in this profession is digging deep and finding ways to flourish. We are continually thinking of you all. Until the next episode of Talking Heads, goodbye! goodbye.